0: Three, two, one. Hit it. What? Reversal of fortune. That's why I tell my friends everything happens for seriously, a reason. Seriously, you had one job. I, just, I, I can't Jeez. with some of these people. I look down your goddamn cell phone. I toes. don't think my dad even knows how to use a computer. Uh, would you rather? Right, trust me, take no, my but advice. seriously, that legit happened. Hello, namaste, shalom, and welcome to Nervous Habits, episode twenty-five. I'm your host, Ricky Rosen. I'm excited to talk to you today about two somewhat related topics, one super intriguing and one that's a little bit more despairing to think about, and they are, there's a razor thin line between sanity and insanity. We'll talk about an experiment that was done in the 1970s that sought to answer the question just how good are psychiatric professionals at identifying people with psychosis, and why it's much easier to prove that you're insane than sane, and also... There have been 292 mass shootings in America in this year alone. What is it about our country that has given birth to a higher rate of mass shootings than all of the other industrialized nations combined? I'm going to explore the roots of gun violence in America and explain what exactly we can do to curb it. All that and so much more on another exciting episode of... Nervous Habits. As always guys, keep those emails coming. Uh, NervousHabitsPodcast at gmail.com, NervousHabitsPodcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at NervousHabitsPodcast, on Twitter at NervousHabits underscore, and look for clips of the pod on YouTube. So I haven't done this in a while, but um, in the last couple of weeks, I've been a little bit busy with school, and I don't know. want <laughs> to know what it is, but pe- some people are starting to listen to older episodes of the podcast. So I want to read to you uh, a couple of um, notes that I got about previous episodes, which maybe if you haven't heard the episodes, these notes might pique your interest. So, uh, first we have Sydney from uh, Bethesda, Maryland, which ironically is actually uh, pretty, pretty close to where I am now. And Sydney uh, may have binged all of the episodes in one go because I got a couple of notes from her. Um, First, she writes in regards to episode 17. That was the one on aging, space exploration, and currency with uh, Stephanos, of course. And Sydney writes... I really enjoyed episode uh, 17. Your guest was extremely knowledgeable about the topics he discusses and possessed a humble attitude about them as well. I will admit it was hard to follow you guys a lot of the time. Given the jargon, I had no idea what uh, what you guys were speaking of at certain points, but it was interesting. Nevertheless, he was an excellent guest. It was particularly cool to hear about Elon Musk's space uh, aspirations. I will admit I had not heard about Elon Musk before listening to the podcast. So that was episode 17. And then she also wrote in about, looks like the bonus episode, she wrote that the dynamic on the first bonus episode was hilarious to listen to, Uh, really, really enjoyed the chemistry between the three of you. I completely agreed with what you said about dating being a continual evaluation and comparison of your options. Don't agree with what your guest Jeremy said on that. And I also don't think that women at all have the same insecurities as men. So that was the uh, first bonus episode where we we discussed dating. And finally, um, Sydney listened to episode 19 on digital minimalism. And she wrote, "Uh, I really enjoyed your advice on digital minimalism on being intentional with your phone and technology. I'm going to try to put it into practice in my everyday life. That's a great point about the marketing techniques of social media and app creators changing changing to more urgent notification colors like red or making the sounds more jarring. Uh, you spoke very articulately about the pro, uh, subject and provided valuable insight. Um, so, thanks so much, Sydney, for, for those notes. Yeah, I really really enjoyed researching and speaking about uh, on episode nineteen the um, int- you know digital minimalism and trying to be more intentional with your phone use because that's something that I've been striving to do in my personal life. And certainly, if in any way I encouraged you to implement those you know those those, those habits. Um, You know, I'm very happy to have done that. And we also have a note here from Dave S. from Jersey City. And Dave was writing in response to episode 21. So another, someone that wrote, you know, was listening to older episodes as well. Episode 21 was on vegetarianism um, with uh, Eric Martinez as the guest. And he said, his voice reminds me of a very soft-spoken H. John Benjamin. Um, (laughs) It was a very interesting topic in how it included philosophy, ethics, and environmental impact as well as society as well as how society shapes our views on food. I thought the questions were great and really helped steer the conversation well. Um, and then, looks like uh, Dave posted a link to cultured uh, an article on cultured meat, and he wrote, I think this is the future rather than impossible meat. I'd be interested to hear Eric's thoughts on whether he would be fine eating cultured meat from an ethical perspective. And if you don't know, cultured meat is meat produced by in vitro cultivation of animal cells. So rather than slaughtering animals and eating the eating the animals, um, it's a form of like cellular agriculture to reproduce uh, the animal cells using almost like genetic engineering. And maybe there's an ethical concern, much like, you know, genetic engineering of of human tissue, um, stem cell research and and whatnot. But it would be interesting to hear, um, you know, if Eric or other vegetarian vegans who are practicing that lifestyle for ethical environmental reasons would object to consuming cultured meat. So that's that's a very interesting note, um, Dave as well. So thanks to uh, you, you know Dave and Sydney for uh, sharing those those thoughts about previous episodes. And you know if you haven't listened to any any of those episodes um, and they sound like they might be interesting to you, feel free to you know go on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and give those a listen. They're they're going to be on on there forever, as as I mentioned to my dad when he came on to do the episode about um generational differences podcasts are not like you know the radio or <laughs> a TV show it's pretty much forever so whether you're listening to this uh, in 2019 or 2025 or you know in the year 2722 and you know maybe mankind is you know on one of uh, Jeff Bezos' or Elon Musk's uh, spaceships and you know we're floating through space maybe you're listening to to this then so definitely um, share your thoughts if you have them also if you enjoy listening to the podcast, I would appreciate it if you wanted to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. I don't think you can leave a review on Spotify, but if you want to leave a review on on Apple Podcasts, you know, let let other people know as they're searching for shows to to listen to that you know, what your your take is on nervous habits, if you have constructive criticism, ways to improve it, if, if you like it, um, if, you know, if you don't like it, <laughs> whatever your opinion is, feel free to leave a comment on Apple Podcasts. Okay, so we got all, all that housekeeping out of the way. I, I know I hadn't done that in a little while, so hope you guys are uh, bearing with me here, and I want to dive into the first segment, which is on sanity versus insanity and we've covered a lot of interesting topics in psychology on the pod um we talked about you know mental illness a while back and personality psychology. we haven 't really talked about sanity the notion of, of what is sane um, last week, we went into like whether or not life was a simulation, and I think that to some degree. That conversation and our conversation today about what it means to be sane are a little bit related because sanity, much like whether or not you can be sure that you're living in a simulation versus reality, sanity is a very subjective a subjective feeling, a subjective mindset. It's not like you can look at someone from the outside and say he's sane, he's insane, um, or maybe you can. Right? It's it's my definition of sanity, and your deficit, definition of sanity might be very different. Um, and there's really no way to know for certain whether or not someone's sane or insane. Now, with the de- with, you know with the development of fields of you know psychiatry um, and mental health uh, diagnoses and, and practitioners, they have their own measures for. Uh, essentially determining if a patient is sane or insane. And I want to go into a little bit of the history of that. But before I do that, let me pose a hypothetical question for all of you. For a moment in time, I want you to imagine that you find yourself waking up in a psychiatric hospital and you have no memory of how you got there. You have no idea what transpired to lead you to that event. All you know is that you're waking up and you're in a hospital bed, and you identify it to be like a mental ward, like a, like a psychiatric institution, the nurses come in to give you your meds, and you have to somehow convince them that there's some sort of mistake, that you're actually sane, even though they are certain, that you have some form of psychosis. So how would you do this? How would you convince them that you're actually sane? I mean, think about it for a moment. Put yourself in that position, in, in, in that situation. You might say, "Oh no, no! There's been some sort of mistake. I'm I'm I, I'm in excellent health. I I have a job. I have children. I have a stable home." You might tell them, "Oh, talk to my husband. Talk to my children. Um, talk talk to my sister. Talk to my parents." You might try to, to use logic and reason, and maybe you'll maybe you're self aware. Maybe you say, "Oh, you know, if I was sane, would I be able to to?" you know comment on my own mood and mental health and no matter what tactic you use i i would imagine i would i would guess that it would be pretty difficult to convince them that you're actually sane wouldn't you there was actually an experiment done in the early 1970s that looked at this very question of How do you determine if someone is sane versus insane? And it was done by Dr. David Rosenhan, and he wanted to assess the validity of psychiatric diagnosis. Basically, how good are doctors? How good are psychiatrists at figuring out if we're sane or insane? So he took seven healthy people, three women and four men, including himself, and told them to feign auditory hallucinations in order to gain admission to psychiatric hospitals in five states. So they were instructed to say that they heard voices of, uh, that they heard voices pronouncing the word thud or hollow or empty in their head repeatedly on a loop and nothing else. So their only symptom when they entered the psychiatric hospital was that I'm hearing the word thud repeatedly in my head, thud, 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 and occasionally hollow, 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 hollow. Well, what do you think happened? These people who had no other symptoms except for that one fact that they heard um, or, or they were instructed to say that they heard thud or hollow or empty. What do you think happened to these folks when they attempted to enter the psychiatric institution? So seven of the eight patients were diagnosed with schizophrenia and one with manic depressive psychosis. So all of them, every single person, that entered the institution was diagnosed with a mental illness. Now, of these eight patients, and by the way, I think I misspoke a moment ago, I might have said seven. Of these eight pseudo patients, you know, these were normal people. This was a psychology graduate student, a pediatrician, a psychiatrist, a painter, a housewife. You know, it wasn't, wasn't as if they had um, other eccentricities about them or indicators that maybe they did have a mental. It was literally just that they heard thud and they were diagnosed with schizophrenia or manic depressive psychosis. Now, many of them stayed in the hospital for a long time. Some stayed up to 52 days. The average of the eight, the average stay was 19 days. All of them were discharged after that point. Um, with a diagnosis of schizophrenia in remission. And despite constantly and openly taking extensive notes on the behavior of the staff and other patients, none of the pseudo-patients were identified as imposters by the hospital staff. They had a 0% (laughs) diagnosis efficiency rating, although many of the other psychiatric patients seemed to be able to correctly identify them as imposters. So can you imagine that for a second? You're in a mental institution and you're completely in excellent um, health. You're obviously it's a, you're an impostor, a pseudo patient. None of the doctors, none of the, the experts, so to speak, were able to identify it. But all of the other um, folks, all the other uh, residents, patients of the psych ward were able to say, "He seems. He seems like he's he's in pretty in pretty good mental health. Maybe there's something else going on here." It it kind of again like calls to you know calls the subjectivity of, or rather calls the objectivity of psychiatric diagnoses into question if people who aren't experts be able to, to identify, but people who are experts or not. So in the first three hospitalizations, 35 of the total of 118 patients expressed the suspicion that the pseudo patients were sane. 35 of 118. So what is that percentage? That's almost 30%. Okay. Some even suggested that the patients were researchers or journalists investigating the hospital. And the staff imper- interpreted much of their behavior, the pseudo patients, in terms of mental illness. So thirty again, zero percent of the doctors were able to identify it, but thirty percent of the other patients um, were. Meaning that the patients who are in good psychological health would act a certain way, and no matter what they did, the doctors and nurses would interpret it as a pathological behavior. They would, let's say, the the pseudo patients would write something down, and the doctors would say, "Oh, this is a pathology." They would insist that they're that they're sane, and it was deemed that they were in denial. The entire biographies of these patients, of these, you know, uh, psychologists and pediatricians and painters and housewives and and doctors, The, the other psychiatrists at the institution completely recast their biographies in hospital records along the lines of what was expected of schizophrenia by the then dominant theories of the time. So again, just, you know, just to emphasize this, these healthy, normal people entered the psychiatric institution, they had a normal biography, and because they were deemed to be schizophrenics or manic depressives, everything that that was true about their life up to that point was completely reframed as if they had a psychopathological condition. But Rosenhan was not done yet. This was just part one of the study, and this—, this this aspect of the study essentially cast a lot of shame onto the the industry as a whole. Um, but for the second part, just because Rosenhan really wanted to be certain that there was a problem here, he used a well known research and teaching hospital, and the staff at this hospital had heard of the results of the first study, and they claimed that similar errors would not happen at their hospital. Oh, you know, we know that you went to you know the the uh, the hospitals in the early seventies, and. I know that those uh, psych- psychiatrists were not able to deem your guys were imposters, but we'll be able to figure it out. That's what they say. You know, y- you essentially can't pull the wool over our eyes. We're on to you, Rosenhan. And so they told him, if you send us imposters, we will be able to identify them. So you know, Rosenhan said, okay. Uh, during a three-month period, we're going to send you a couple, you know, one or more pseudo patients to you know, who would attempt to gain admission and your staff would have to rate every patient as to the likelihood that they were an imposter. You know, do you think that this, this person's an imposter or not? So during the next three months, that hospital received 193 patients. And they said of that 193, we think 41 are Rosenhan's imposters and another 42, they might be, they're suspect. So 83 of the 193 patients that were admitted in that three months, the hospital believed could be Rosenhan's pseudo-patients. 83 of 193, so 43%. In reality, guys, Rosenhan sent no one. All patients that were suspected to be imposters by the hospital staff, they were ordinary patients with psychopathological conditions. That is really, really for lack of a better term, crazy to think about I mean what I mean what what can we learn from the Rosenhan experiment because this is in the psychiatric industry this is very famous, this is consider, or infamous notorious. this is considered what not to do, <laughs> and it led to a lot of reexamination of the standards by which we or they as a whole are diagnosing people with mental illness with psychoses so There's a couple things we can learn from this. Number one, hospitals at that time in the 1970s severely over admitted patients for psychosis. So there was an over diagnosis. And I think that we've gotten a lot better in the last 40 something years. But you could make the case that we still have the problem today where we are, you know, over diagnosed. We're putting a label on any sort of, uh, you know, psychological frame that this person has a condition that is, you know, that can be found in the DSM, the Diagnostic and St- Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. But another takeaway for me is, perhaps more importantly, is that if you are in a position where you're assumed to be crazy, it's extremely difficult, it's almost impossible to prove that you're sane. And, and this is, you know, goes back to the question that I asked you at the onset of this discussion is if you woke up in a hospital bed and you need to convince you know, someone that you're actually sane beyond a shadow of a doubt. You needed to convince them objectively that I don't belong here. I'm okay. You know, Get me out of this place. I don't know how you would do that because it is far easier to show that you're insane than the opposite, to show that you're actually sane. And there was a book that I read a couple years ago, which I actually think is one of the few books I thoroughly enjoyed that I have not yet shared on this pod, you know, 25 episodes in, and that's called The Psychopath Test by uh, John Ronson. And it's essentially a nonfiction book about Ronson's real-life experience visiting alleged psychopaths and, and the psychologists who diagnosed them. I think they may have even mentioned um, Rosenhan's test in there. I can't remember for sure, but Ronson wants to discover in the book if the people he's interacting with are, in fact, psychopaths. And one of the mental patients he meets, Tony, he tells them he swears to Ronson that he actually faked madness to exp- to uh, escape a prison sentence for uh gbh grievous bodily harm, and he's now stuck in a secure hospital because nobody will believe that he's sane and this is a you know a very common question you know if, if you want to get off you want to beat the system this is this is you know seen in soap operas and old movies you, you, you know you can uh fake a uh, mental illness in order to be found by a judge to be guilty by reason of insanity and then sent to a mental institution instead of to a correctional facility. So Tony actually tells Ronson, he says, or actually rather, Ronson writes in the book, The Psychopath Test, he writes, It is an awful lot harder, Tony told me, to convince people you're sane than it is to convince them you're crazy. You know, th- there's, there's not a whole lot you can do to externally communicate to someone that you have an internal sane mindset you know you you act in a calm quiet temperament they might think you're putting on a composed demeanor pretending to be all together to suggest that you're sane when you're not if you act the opposite if you're emotional hysterical you might think you're acting genuine how a sane person would react to the allegation that they're insane but the other person might interpret that behavior as being untethered from sanity I'm not even going to attempt to answer this question because there is no answer to this one. No matter how you act, it's impossible to show someone you're sane once they're presented with the implication that you're insane. Much like when Rosenhan uh, sent those you know, eight patients, no matter what they did, the psychiatrists reframed their entire lives as being what is expected of someone who has psychosis. And I mean, just the entire, con- the entire conception, idea of sanity is such an interesting concept I mean, you see sanity in humans, like, could you, is there such a thing as sanity in other beings? You know, could you have, you know, is is there sanity versus insanity in dogs, in cats, in birds, in primates? Could you have a dog that, that has psychosis? Could you have a, you know, a bird? I mean, I <laughs> our pet birds can be a little loopy sometimes. I personally think no, because... Other animals, physiological speaking, don't have the cerebral, the prefrontal cortex, the specialization in their cerebrum to, you know, have that level of emotion and intuit, which are in some to some extent probably required for sanity. But I think you, again, subject subjectively speaking, I think you can make the case that there are sane versus insane animals. In the first episode of the pod, I, actually, this might might have been the episode I did on death. I mentioned a quote from uh, Blaine Pascal. Uh, And it's one of my favorite quotes. It's, men are so necessarily mad that not to be mad would amount to another form of madness. I mean, we could all be insane and the people who are insane by society's standards could be sane, right? I mean, what's to say that's not the case? What's to say that the world being such a dark and unforgiving place filled with so much evil and tragedy, the people who become insane as a result of that are actually sane and all of us who shrug it off and brush it off and, you know, keep our composure and pretend like everything's okay when it's really not. What if we're the insane ones? Nobody knows, right? And given the amount of adversity in the world and the amount of tragedy and the amount of shit, I mean, we're going to talk in, you know, five, 10 minutes about gun violence. Some people physically are not equipped with the tools to rise, to rise above all of it. Some people genetically are at a disadvantage. Some people environmentally. Either grew up with or are surrounded by forms of psychosis. I mean, you see it all the time if someone you know has a, a hereditary predisposition to something, if you have schizophrenia in your family or other forms of psychosis, it might be likely that if you're subjected to enough adversity, those conditions which are latent begin to, to come out and you know that, that develops in, 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 you know, in someone in that situation. I mean, but on the other hand, is being insane that undesirable? I think that just to keep an open mind in this conversation, some of the most successful and inspirational people, they've had a tenuous grip on reality. And this is a a topic that, or this this is a concept that a lot of people are familiar with. If you look at like Ernest Hemingway, for example, one of the most famous American authors ever, he became so paranoid in the later years of his life that the FBI was actively monitoring him. And he was driven mad with paranoia That he was admitted to the Mayo uh, Clinic, he thought it was to treat hypertension, but instead he was treated with electroconvulsive therapy for psychosis. He ended up shooting himself in the face with a shotgun in his kitchen back in 1961 because he struggled so much with his sanity. You look at Howard Hughes, the pilot, businessman, and film director who suffered from maybe the most public form of psychosis in American history. I'm going to share with you some facts about Hughes' lifestyle because I think it's an interesting case study in psychosis. So Hughes ate the same thing every night for dinner. It was a New York strip steak cooked medium rare, uh, salad, and peas, but only the smaller peas. He would push the larger ones to the side. He stayed inside a film studio's darkened screening room for more than four months, never leaving. And he ate only chocolate bars and chicken and drank only milk and was surrounded by dozens of Kleenex boxes that he continuously stacked and rearranged. Howard Hughes wrote detailed memos to his aides, giving them explicit instructions neither to look at him nor speak to him unless spoken to. And this was serious. This was not in jest. This, was, this predated sarcasm. Throughout this period, Hughes sat fixated in his chair, often naked, continually watching movies, and he stored his urine in bottles. This you might be familiar with if you saw the movie The Aviator um, with Leonardo DiCaprio. When he finally emerged in the summer of 1958, uh, when he left you know, the screening room for the first time in four months, his hygiene was terrible. He hadn't bathed or cut his hair or nails in weeks. After that incident, Howard Hughes moved into a bungalow at the Beverly Hills Hotel, where he also rented rooms for his aides, his wife, and his numerous girlfriends. He would sit naked in his bedroom with a pink hotel napkin placed over his genitals, again, watching movies. He began purchasing all restaurant chains and four-star hotels that had been founded within the state of Texas. This included many unknown franchises currently out of business. He would place ownership of the restaurants with the Howard Hughes Medical Institute and all licenses were resold shortly after. Another time, he became so obsessed with the 1968 film Ice, State, Ice Station Zebra and had it run on a continuous loop in his home that, According to his aides, he watched it 150 times. Feeling guilty about the commercial, critical, literal toxicity of his film, The Conqueror, he bought every copy of the film for $12 million, watching the film on repeat. And finally, Howard Hughes insisted on on using tissues to pick up objects to insulate himself from germs. He would also notice dust, stains, or other imperfections on people's clothes and demand that they take care of them. He was once one of the most visible men in America. He ultimately vanished from public view, although the tabloids continued to follow rumors of his behavior and whereabouts. And he was reported to be terminally ill, mentally unstable, or even dead. So, if you so, so all that information on Horace Hughes is, is from his online uh, biographical page. I'm, I'm going to sh- share that with you guys for uh, on the detail section of the podcast. If you're interested in learning more, very eccentric guy. Um, interesting to to hear about his practices. Almost kind of intriguing, also to hear about what someone with psychosis can do if they have the means, if they have like the financial means. I mean, you know how many people who are psychotic can have $12 million to buy every single copy of a film or to buy every single franchise? And I think the point, what we can glean from Hughes's life and and Hemingway and, and other successful people who have battled their sanity is that, you know, psychosis is not a death sentence. And certainly, much like with any form of mental illness, it can be managed and it can be treated. But along the same lines, it's not something that we can say with a degree of certainty whether or not it exists in someone or not. It's truly extremely subjective, and it was true in the 70s with the Rosenhan experiment. I think it's still true today. Is There's no way of knowing you know, if someone is sane or if they have a psychopathological condition, if they have psychosis like schizophrenia. I want to switch gears and talk about a topic that I think will drive any reasonable person insane, and I alluded to it a few minutes ago and that's gun violence. Now, this is something that's difficult to talk about, probably going to be difficult to hear. Not a super fun segment, but it's one that I've planned on discussing for a long time. I think that, you know, with the podcast, I strive to discuss issues that I'm passionate about, I'm interested in, but also that I think listeners should, listeners deserve to know about, listeners might want to learn more about, and just things that as people, as, as human beings, as, as citizens of the world, as Americans, we really can't turn away from. And nothing epitomizes those themes more than the problem of gun violence in America. So I remember back in 2012 when there was a shooting in Aurora, Colorado. It was, I think, it was uh, July 20th of 2012 when a gunman busted into the movie theater for a midnight screening of The Dark Knight Rises. You might have might have heard about this a while back, and he opened fire on the audience with multiple firearms. He killed 12 innocent people that day and injured 70 others. I remember reading all accounts of, this, of the shooting in the newspaper on Saturday morning, uh, the day after it happened, about how four men died protecting their girlfriends. They, they had gone out for a date night and left their apartment together, and you know, each of those women ended up going home alone. And another, another man, uh, Gordon Cowden, died saving the lives of his two teenage daughters. A dad who took his girls out for a movie and ended up losing his life. Now, I remember when this happened, it, it put me in a state of shock and fear. I'll admit I was terrified after that happened. I, I was worried to go out to the movie theaters because I was actually, I was genuinely scared that I might find myself in the front row with my back turned while a madman breaks into the movies with a semi automatic rifle and shoots me and my friends in the back. It actually took me months before I could go to the movies after that. And I'm sure that's true for many most Americans following the Aurora Colorado shooting. And then following that cuz that was back in 2012, there were shootings at at the mall, malls across the country. And at that point I was kind of I was kind of reconsidering, do I really want to go to the mall? You know, one in a thousand chance that this happens. Do I really want that to be me? They shot up a synagogue in Pittsburgh last year. They killed 11 people, most of them in their 60s and 70s. One of the victims was a 97 years old I, I think um, they might have been a Holocaust survivor. And for a brief moment, I was afraid to go to the synagogue to practice my religion. And the truth is, that fear will never go away because none of us are safe in anywhere in America. You know, they say that America is the land of the free and the home of the brave. But the truth is, all of us have to say a prayer every time we leave our homes to go out in public that we don't make it back home in a body bag. You know, for all your parents out there, I'm, I'm sure you're worried about whether or not your child will come off the school bus at the end of the day. You know, when you pack your kids lunch in the morning, it won't be the last time that you ever kiss them goodbye. God, I know this is a scary, depressing thought. I mean, this is this is, this is so, so shitty to say and, and so shitty to think about, and I'm, I'm really sorry for putting this on you as you're you know, doing laundry or, or cooking or going on a run. But this is what happened. This is what happens every day. I mean, this ha- the situation happened. I mentioned where you're packing your kids up for the day if you're a parent. This happened to 20 mothers and fathers on December 14th of 2012 in Newtown, Connecticut, where they shot up an elementary school and killed 26-year-old children. I shudder at the thought of how much evil has to reside in a person's heart to murder 20 innocent children in the first Grade. The first grade, you guys. When I was in first grade, we had hurricane drills. We had earthquake drills once or twice a year. I was most worried about learning my rhyming families and holding hands with a girl on the playground. That's what I cared about. Today first graders have shooting drills regularly. And even though many of them have a very limited understanding of the concept of death and what it would mean not to be alive anymore, I can imagine some of them worry about an active shooter breaking into their classroom and killing them and all of their friends. You know, this is not a pleasant conversation to have. This is not ple- pleasant to think about. I-, I would not blame you if you hit pause or stop and, and you know, wanted to go watch Love Island and, and forget that all this shit's happening. I'm sorry to, f- I'm sorry, I'm sorry to force this imagery, imagery on you, but we can't turn our heads away. We We can't cover our eyes and ears and just Hope that this doesn't happen to us or anyone that we know because it might. This is happening everywhere in our country and it might happen to you or your friends or your family because it's getting worse every single year. It's, it's not getting better. It's not plateauing. It's getting worse. Your likelihood of being shot – guys, so there's a lot of literature that, that I'm going to share with you for, for this segment. But I'm just going to throw out some statistics, okay? This is from Business Business Insider um, last year. So assaults by firearms kill about 13,000 people in the U.S. each year, and this translates to a roughly 1 in 315 lifetime chance of death from gun violence. The risk of dying in a mass shooting is about 35 times lower than that, with a 1 in 11, or excuse me, 1 in eleven eleven thousand one hundred twenty five 11,125 lifetime chance of death in the U.S., While that might not seem very high, consider this. The chance of dying from gun violence overall is 50% greater than the lifetime risk of dying while riding inside a a car, truck, or van. It's also more than 10 times as high as dying from any natural disaster, such as a hurricane, tornado, earthquake, or flood. So one in in 11,000, that may not sound like that high to you, but it's higher than a whole lot of other things that could kill you like a hurricane, like a tornado, like an earthquake, like a flood. There's a very real possibility that your life will end in a mass shooting. Just think about that for a moment. Think about all the things that could kill you. Cancer and heart disease and a car accident. Maybe you drop dead of an aneurysm or a stroke. Maybe you get some some rare incurable disease or, or virus that we haven't even heard of. Maybe you're murdered, maybe you're asphyxiated, maybe you drown. Maybe maybe you know Pass away in a fire. I mean, there's all sorts of, of tragedies. But there's a possibility, one in 11,000, that you, your life will end in a mass shooting. And, it's, and it's, it's only getting worse with time. So a couple months back, this was um, I think in early August. There were two mass shootings within a 24-hour window in America. There was one in El Paso, Texas. Um, 20, 20, uh, 20 people were dead as a result of that. There was one in Dayton, Ohio. Nine people were dead as a result of that. Um, there have been... 292 mass shootings in the U.S. this year, including there was a shooting in Las Vegas in 2017 that killed 58 people and injured 851. There was a shooting in an Orlando nightclub in 2016 that killed 49 people. There was a shooting in Virginia Tech in 2007 that killed 32 people. There was a shooting, as I mentioned, in Sandy Hook in 2012 that killed 26 people, including 20 children between the ages of six and seven years old and six adult staff members. There was a shooting in Parkland, Florida. In 2018, that killed 17 people, 14 high school students, and three staff members. It seems that literally every weekend we get news of a mass shooting. You know, we hear the city. We hear the number dead. We become desensitized desensitized to it. We mourn. You know, we, we send our thoughts and prayers. We, you know, say the same trite expressions on Twitter. Something needs to be done. We need change. This is going to keep happening. Hashtag thoughts and prayers. Then we move on to the next tragedy. The next city or town or school whose name is unfortunate enough to fall victim to the latest news cycle. Calls to mind this quote by Joseph Stalin. A single death is a tragedy. A million deaths is a statistic. These people whose, whose lives were stolen from them, their mothers and fathers, their sons and daughters, friends and coworkers, brothers and sisters, priests and rabbis, Teachers, psychologists, accountants, house cleaners, gas station attendants, receptionists, interns, assistants, and when they die as a result of this senseless tragedy, all they become is a statistic. You know, it makes me so fucking angry to think about just the fact that this is happening in my country, in our country. Can you imagine what the rest of the world thinks? I mean, if, if, if I was living in the UK or in South Asia, my children wanted to go to college in America battleground for semi-automatic rifles? I wouldn't let them. One in 11,000 chance they're going to be shot dead walking down the sidewalk? Are you kidding me? There's a lot to unpack here. Um, how? Why does this happen? What can we do about it? Can we do anything about it? What is it about our society that leads this problem to be perpetuated? And don't kid yourself, this is an exclusively American problem. Exclusively American problem. It is amazing. The U.S. firearm homo- homicide rate is 20 times higher than the combined rates of 22 developed countries. The U.S. has... Has had 57 times as many school shootings as the other major industrialized nations combined. Take every other industri- major industrialization, add them together. U.S. has 57 times as many combined. Since 2009, the U.S. has had 288 school shootings. This is just school shootings. Mexico has had eight, Canada's had two, France has had two, Germany's had one, Japan, Italy, U.K. They've had none. The United States, 280, almost 300 school shootings in the last 10 years. I mean, it's unfathomable how many shootings we have here in America. And a lot has been written everywhere trying to figure out why. Consistently over the last 10, 15, 20 years, pretty much after every single mass shooting, there's an op-ed that tries desperately to get to the bottom of this. And the number one reason, and by the way, nothing I'm saying is going to be news. You know, nobody's going to listen to this and say, oh my God, that's a brilliant idea. This is, I mean, you know this, the number one reason why these mass shootings are going on is the high accessibility and ownership of guns in the United States. The United States has the highest per capita gun ownership in the world with 120 firearms per 100 people. The second highest is Yemen with 52 firearms per 100 people. The United States has almost more than double the rate of gun ownership as the next highest country. Are, are, you, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me right now? Let's not be naive. Yes, mental illness is a contributing factor. We're going to get to that in a few minutes, I promise. But these unhinged, unstable people, people who are not mentally, physically, or emotionally well, are getting their hands on guns very easily. Gun laws in the United States, they vary state by st- state, by state, though there are also federal firearm laws that all states are bound by. Now, some states have bans on assault weapons, automatic machine guns. Some states have magazine restrictions. Some states require a permit to purchase a gun. Some states have open carry laws, and some states have conceal and carry laws. It really runs the gamut. But as you expected, there is... Kind of a regional discrepancy in the variance of these gun laws. In Alabama, there's generally no restriction on firearms. Anyone can purchase a gun relatively easily. Open carries permitted, so long as the handgun is securely contained in a holster. Guys, jeez. <laughs> if you don't believe me, these these facts these facts are all online. Um, just go to Wikipedia, gun laws in the United States by state, um, and there's there's all sorts of uh, resources. I'm going to include uh, Brady United um, is is a good one and um, the uh, Giffords Law Center I'm, I'm gonna mention that in, in, in a few minutes but Alabama, pretty much anyone can get a gun whenever you want so long as the handgun is securely contained in a holster. And by the way, I, just anecdotally um, one of my friends uh, has a summer home in Virginia so a year or two back I went with him to um, to a shooting range. It, it really my first and only time shooting a gun just because it you know I seem it was like a bucket list item you know do it do it once or twice. I um, also wanted to know what the experience was like for almost like educational purposes. So we walk into a shooting range in Virginia and I would expect that they'd have like, you know, have to do some sort of background or mental health check. Um, There'd be a ton of paperwork. Maybe we'd have like a training. We'd have supervision. None of that, you guys. You walk into a a shooting range in Virginia. You hand them your driver's license. You sign an initial, a waiver that says that they're not liable for XYZ and they hand you a weapon. They hand you a Glock. They hand you a pistol. They don't show you how to use it. They hand you a weapon, and in you go into the shooting range. So you don't you don't have someone training you or sh- showing you how to use the weapons. You don't have any sort of background check. And what's most scary is you don't have any supervision. You don't have anyone watching you to make sure you don't shoot yourself in the head, to make sure you don't shoot your friends. Even by accident, you guys. I had a friend who hadn't shot. I mean, I hadn't shot before, so I was very much like my friends were helping me out. I had a friend who hadn't shot before, and his first shot went to the ceiling. I mean... God, this how is this safe? How how is this lawful? And that's Virginia. It's even worse in Alabama. On the other hand, in Massachusetts and California, you almost always need to undergo a background check, um, obtain a permit to get a gun, and there are all sorts of restrictions on what weapons can be purchased and carried. The problem, you guys, is that much like with abortion and you know other socio political issues, if you want a gun. You can just, you know, roll into one of these states with less restrictive gun laws, and pretty much anyone can be handed a gun. You walk in, as I said, you know, my experience at the shooting range, you give them your identification and information, you purchase a handgun or rifle, some ammunition, and you walk out. The Giffords Law Center uh, was co-founded by former Congresswoman Gabrielle Giffords, and she herself, if you recall, in Tucson, Arizona, was a victim of gun violence. So the Giffords Law Center assigned a grade to all fifty states on the strength of their gun laws, as well as the rates of gun-related deaths in that state. And you can find this on lawcentered.giffords.org/scorecard. I'm going to include the link as well. The states receiving an A in terms of the strength of their gun laws and the rates of gun-related deaths in that state. So what state is what states is it more safe, essentially, from gun violence? California and New Jersey got an A. New York, Connecticut, Massachusetts got an A. And then Hawaii and Maryland got A-minuses. So essentially, the states in the Northeast and California, kind of like the left, left-leaning states with the most restrictive gun laws, those are deemed to be the safest states with regards to gun violence, according to the Giffords Law Center's analysis. The states receiving an F, you guys, the states where there are a lot of gun-related deaths and their gun laws are not great. Okay, it's, it's a long list, but tell me if, if, you know, if, the, if these states are familiar to you. South Carolina, Georgia, West Virginia, Kentucky, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, Arkansas, Missouri, Texas, Oklahoma, New Mexico, and entirely, the excuse me, essentially the entire South and Midwest plus Maine. Those are the states where I don't, again, I don't know if I'd be safe, if I feel good sending my kid to college um, with, you know, with the rates of gun-related deaths in those states. So what can we do? To this point, you know, it's a very dismal conversation I'm sure you guys can tell I'm angry there's a lot of indignation um, I'm upset I'm sure you're feeling the same way but there are things that we can do we as a society can do and much like I said with when we talked about the problem it's kind of common sense the changes that we can make um, and I'll, I'll tell you what what these are uh, and and you know where like what stage we are how close we are to making these changes so first things first the most important kind of like, Nonpartisan step that we can do in order to alleviate this, even even by a little bit, is by enacting background checks in all 50 states. This is something that's been pushed for a very long time. So proposals for universal background checks would require almost all firearm transactions in the U.S. to be recorded and go through the National Instant Criminal Background Check System, the NICS, uh, closing what is called the private sale exemption. So after the Stoneman Douglas shooting in Parkland, Florida, almost all Americans supported universal background checks. Um, and according to a political poll around that time, 88% of uh, registered voters, as well as according to a Quinnipiac poll, 97% of voters supported universal background checks. So this is a nonpartisan issue. Democrats, Republicans, everyone's agrees. Let's just do it. So what's happening right now with that? The legislation is just kind of sitting in Congress. Um... So it's H.R. 8, the Bipartisan Background Checks Act of 2019. You can look it up um, online on the uh, C- Congress, congressional website where they have all the the bills and, you know, the, the text of the bills and, and, you know, where they're at in the House and, and the Senate. So the H.R. 8, Bipartisan Background Checks Act of 2019 – So the House of Representatives passed it by a vote of 240 to 190, and the bill would prohibit most firearm transfers unless a background check can be conducted. The Senate has not taken any action on the bill since the House passed it. And then you also have H.R. 1112, the Bipartisan Background Checks Act, and this bill would extend to at least 10 days, the amount of time firearm dealers must wait for a response from the background check system before the sale can proceed. So right now they can make the sale if they haven't uh, received a a response in three days and the bill would extend to at least 10 days. This window, again, it passed in uh, February 2019 by a vote of 240 to 190 and the Senate has not taken any action on it. So this is a bipartisan issue. Again, it's just sitting, waiting for the Senate to act on it. So what are we waiting for? Let's push this thing through. So this this is the kind of thing where we need some sort of mass push um, on some... a ton of pressure that people are putting on senators to bring this to the floor for a vote rather than just just sitting cuz i mean these kind of things again common sense you know universal background checks and extending that window so someone can't just you know grab a gun and within a couple days use it for whatever behavior they see fit there's a 10 day window which for some of these excuse me for some of these people might make the difference between someone acting quickly and impulsively and kind of putting the brakes on that sort of action. So another thing that is pretty nonpartisan is a ban on assault weapons. Why do civilians need to purchase semi-automatic weapons? This is something that a lot of people have been asking, particularly in light of the shootings over the summer in um, El Paso and uh, Dayton. I mean, like in general, you know, if you're using a gun for recreational purposes, for leisure, for hunting. Maybe you go to the shooting range. Maybe you're shooting bottles in your backyard with your kid, what have you. That's your right as an American under the Second Amendment. Okay, that's fine. No one's trying to take that away from you. But the question becomes, you know, military-grade rifles and semi-automatic weapons that fire hundreds of rounds in seconds, I mean, to me, that seems excessively dangerous, especially in light of gun-related death uh, rises in, across America in the last decade and woefully unnecessary. So this is a question particularly since, you know, since the 90s that that people have have raised. And when Bill Clinton was president, he actually pushed for the passage of the Public Safety and Recreational Firearms Use Protection Act or Federal Assault Weapons Ban, AWB, which included a prohibition on the manufacture for c- civilian use of certain semi-automatic firearms that were defi- defined as as assault weapons, as well as certain ammunition magazines that were defined as large capacity, so it was actually signed into law back in the nineties by President Clinton and expired in two thousand and four. So I mean, we haven't had—it's been fifteen years, and we have not had a renewed assault weapons ban, even in light of the statistics that I mentioned, where you're having increasing numbers of gun-related fatalities and injuries. That makes absolutely no sense. Fifteen years, you guys, since this ban expired. And this issue, this issue in particular, compared to the last issue with regards to the universal background checks, is a little bit partisan because Congress has attempted to pass bans on assault-style weapons, but the legislation has picked up little traction in the Republican-controlled Senate. You guys, Republicans are, I mean, you know the politics behind all this. Republicans are heavily funded, um, and you know their campaigns are subsidized by lobby groups such as the NRA, and so their political interest is to have as little regulation on guns as possible. So you have Democrats in Congress that are pushing for an assault weapons ban, and the Republicans are not, and that to me is inexcusable. I don't care if you're conservative or you're liberal, you're Republican or Democrat. This is a common sense issue that can save lives, you guys. Republican lives. Who gives a shit, right? Who cares? So I really, I, I try not to delve into the weeds of, you know, Republican, Democrat on the podcast. because number one, I I, I don't, I want to encourage a, an open-minded, you know, healthy mindset on the pod for myself and for my listeners. Um, I, I don't like this us versus them mentality that uh, you know, by the partisanship has, has devolved into. Um, so I very rarely say, you know, the Republicans are right about this, the Democrats are right about this. Identify as this, identify as that. It, it to me, it doesn't matter. But I I look at these things issue by issue, and when it comes to an assault weapons ban, the Republicans. There's just, there's just no defense. The Republicans are letting people die. That's that's what the reality is. Now, that being said, in March of 2019, the Trump administration banned bump stocks or attachments that could allow semi-automatic rifles to mimic automatic weapons. Um, this was after the mass shooting in Las Vegas that I mentioned, which uh, involved a rifle modified with a bump stock, killing 58 people. So there there's some progress by the Trump White House, which obviously is Republican-controlled, but... The assault, wipe bo- the assault-style weapons ban is really the enormous step that we need in order to push this through, but no traction because the Republican-controlled uh, Senate. So that, to me, that's indefensible. And that's something where we need to push our Republican representatives in the Senate to make this change. Okay, we don't need all of them to make the change. We just need to, you know, convince a handful of Republican senators to see the light, to look past the political interest, to look past the you know, the impact on their re-election campaign and the, the fundraising from the NRA to look past all that and think about the impact on American lives. Now I alluded earlier to mental health and the you know impact of mental health. On this issue, because I think that a lot of, again, when it does devolve into kind of partisan, a lot of, you know, uh, Democrats will insist, okay, assault weapons bans, and Republicans will kind of come back and say, well, you know, it's a mental health issue. And certainly, as I I just said, the assault weapons ban is probably the most immediate, impactful thing that we can do to, you know, to curb this. But that being said, it isn't just the accessibility of these weapons that's responsible for the mass shootings. Mental illness is to blame as well. So, what role does mental illness play in these mass killings? The Wall Street Journal wrote fairly recently um, on a number of studies that were done between 2000 and 2015 that suggest that about a third of mass killers have an untreated severe mental illness. And uh, uh, excuse me. And by the way, if mental illness is defined more broadly, the percentage is higher. There was a report that the FBI released in 2018 titled, A Study of the Pre-Attack Behavior of Active Shooters in the United States Between 2008 and 2013. And it reported that 40% of the shooters had received a psychiatric diagnosis and 70% had mental health stressors or mental health concerning behaviors before the attack. Most recently, in July of 2019, the Secret Service in America released this report, Mass Attacks in Public Spaces, 2018. The report covered 27 attacks that resulted in 91 deaths and 107 injuries. And the investigators found that 67% of the suspects displayed symptoms of mental illness or emotional disturbance. In 93% of the incidents, the authorities found that the suspects had a history of death. Excuse me. In 93% of the incidents, the authorities found that the suspects had a history of threats or other troubling communications. The results were similar to those of another study public, published by the Secret Service on 28 such attacks. In 2017. So, I mean, what does all this data relay to us? These people that are committing these acts of mass violence are not in good mental health. And it it kind of ties into our, you know, earlier discussion, the segment on sanity versus insanity. A lot of these people may have forms of psychosis. And that's not to say that all of them do. I think that certain people who, who might even be in sound mental health. Might commit these these atrocities, knowing very well what they're doing. I also think that you can't make the the causal. You know, you can't allege from a causality standpoint that mental illness actions taken to address mental illness will curb um, gun violence. Like there's no uh, there's no direct proximate like with a degree of certainty A to B link. But that being said, we can do things to address mental health mental illness and gun violence. We can do things to make sure, to make as much as possible that the people that are using these guns, that have access to these guns, are in sound mental health. So one of the things we can do is adopt these uh, red flag laws. And red flag laws would allow family members or law, or law enforcement in a community to limit a person's access to firearms if they are deemed a potential threat to the public. And this is something that, that's begun to, to pick up traction in a number of states. Colorado is the 15th state, in addition to Washington, D.C., to say yes to red flag laws, while another 21 have, have at least taken some steps towards adopting a so-called red flag law. This is another bipartisan measure, by the way. President Trump actually endorsed red flag laws after shootings in El Paso and Dayton, Ohio back in August. So certainly, the red flag laws would be a positive step Towards addressing mental illness and gun violence, I would actually argue that we can go a little bit further. Um, perhaps instituting a database that, much like the National Instant Criminal Background Check System, the NICS that I mentioned earlier with background checks, much like that, kind of uh, funnels information about a person's criminal record through the system for firearms transactions. I, I would, you know, I, I would say we need a detailed mental health check where essentially a person's, all of a person's psychological or or, or psychiatric treatment or history is kind of put into a database and they're given like a risk factor score. This, by the way, I'm just, I'm like just thinking creatively about this now. Um, but we need a database where someone is given a risk factor score based on You know the number of you know psychiatric psychological visits based on treatment. Are they on medication? Do they have a genetic family history of psychosis? Based on all this, we need a team of psychiatrists that give someone a score of a risk factor on a scale of you know one to ten. And if someone is let's say an eight, let's say one to you know one to three is not a high risk, four to six is moderate risk, and you know seven to ten is a high risk. And if someone's an eight, they cannot purchase firearms. That's what—I I, I know that sounds very radical, but that that would be, in my opinion, a hands-on solution to addressing the problem of—or the role of mental health and, and, and gun violence. And we don't have anything like that, to my knowledge. If I'm wrong, please feel free to let me know. Please educate me on this, because I—there's I, a lot I don't know about these issues. But that's what I would do. And again, if you want to devolve this into a partisan Republican versus Democrat issue, for the Republicans, you know, you're insisting that— it's an assault, you know, an assault weapons ban would not be the answer. Mental health is the problem. So why not push for something like why not propose something like that? I think I might That's not a bad idea. That is not a, a bad idea. Um I, I don't know. I, I think I think I I, I, I might um I might flush that out a little bit and and see what we can do. Because otherwise I'm as culpable as anybody if I if I stand here silently, idly, and do nothing. So I think that is is a decent um of course faction to take. But I guess the bottom line is a couple things is, as I said, you know, this is not an easy thing to talk about. And I apologize if this hasn't been easy to listen to, if this has kind of soured your mood, if you guys are feeling, you know, bummed out and cynical now and yada, yada, yada. I, I'm sorry about that. But but we we can't turn away because this is going to continue to happen unless people begin to look, look at the problem straight away. You know, like we talked about The Matrix, we talked about... Plato in the cave take the red pill you guys open your eyes to what's going on in the world and do something about it because you can you know there's there's the background checks bills are sitting waiting for the Senate to vote on them the assault weapons bills we need Republicans to join forces and I mentioned you know for mental health you have the red flag laws um, and you know what I'm suggesting maybe that a bit like there's a lot that we can do so let's let's start doing it. um God. Now I'm now I'm kind of it. It's tough because, you know, I I, I I enjoy speaking about these issues, but much like how I felt after the episode I did on death and mortality, it's a downer. This is this is a downer. Um, so this has been a hard hard pivot, as Adam would say. Um, <laughs> if you listen to the bonus episode, this has been a. Uh, you know, packed episode of Nervous Habits. Let's kind of review what we what we discussed. We talked about the Rosenhan experiments, how he sent uh, eight patients into a mental institution. None of them were identified as imposters, um, despite the fact that their only symptom was hearing the word thud, uh, and they were kept and uh, diagnosed with schizophrenia. And then for a second, you know, course of the experiment, he actually told the hospital he would send them imposters and sent no one, uh, cast a lot of doubt on diagnosing, over-admitting patients in hospitals. We also talked about the difficulty of proving that you're sane, when someone is, you know, deeming you to be insane, and we looked at case studies of people who were able to be, you know, successful uh, in their eccentric ways, in spite of their struggles with uh, sanity and psychosis and the subjectivity of all of it, and of course, we went into uh, gun violence the uh, statistics surrounding the occurrences of gun violence in America compared to other industrialized nations, particularly in schools. We went into state-by-state gun laws the Northeast, the most restrictive, lowest rates of gun-related deaths, and the South, Southwest, Midwest, is the highest and, and the least safe uh, for those gun-related deaths. And we talked about what you can do about it with background checks, uh, bans on assault weapons, and um, you know, efforts to address the mental health issue with gun violence. Next week you guys, we have an exciting bonus episode. I can I can't say it's planned because as you know those those episodes are fairly unscripted, but we'll be bringing back at least one, maybe a couple of returning guests to lighten your mood, uh, hopefully more so than all of this has done. And that's coming up next, so stay tuned to Nervous Habits podcast to hear more details about that. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Nervous Habits Podcast. If you have thoughts, feelings, suggestions, particularly on, you know, everything that I mentioned about gun violence, and know that's an, a topic where people tend to be rather opinionated, feel free to shoot me an email at nervoushabitspodcast.gmail.com, DM at nervoushabitspodcast, or on Twitter at nervoushabits underscore, and on YouTube, just search Nervous Habits Podcast. And remember, guys, if you wake up in a mental institution with no memory of how you got there, you're basically fucked because <laughs> sanity and insanity are inherently subjective. Thanks a lot and stay nervous. Take care, guys.